0: proud
1: and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like The Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. Today I'm holding space for a friend of mine who is an amazing woman. Her name is Dawn, mm-hmm. and we have have spent time together on numerous occasions over the years and we've been in sharing circles together. She's made a very big impression on me and snippets of the things that she shared have become words to remember for me. And on one night in particular, when I was struggling with understanding my role in helping others, it was Dawn who sat up late with me and talked me through and explained how to set boundaries and why that allows us to help others better when we aren't participating in their drama. So I'm really grateful to my friend Dawn and I have learned a lot from this lady and I know her story is powerful, but I don't know all the details. I haven't heard it all from back to front, and I'm looking forward to getting to know her story along with all of you today. So Dawn, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I'm glad you're here.
2: Thanks, Jean. I'm really honored to be here today. Thank you for asking me, for sharing my story.
1: Oh, I'm, it's my pleasure. It's my honor. And it, it might surprise you to know how much your words have impacted me, but it really is true. There's a lot of things I've heard you say that I like. wrote uh, inside my brain and hung on to it. So, you you know, <laughs> your lessons have impacted, have impacted me for sure. Well, Thank I want to give you as much time as possible. So, let's get right down to your story, Don. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story.
2: Okay. Well, um, here goes nothing. Um, <laughs> my name is Dawn. <laughs> yeah. My name is Don, And basically, I'm a person in long-term recovery, which means I have not used uh, alcohol or drugs for over 22 years. And um, I currently live in Kelowna, B.C. I was born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is um, the gateway to the West. It was uh, I was born and raised there. So for 20 years, that was my reality. And uh, until I realized that there were other places that were uh, not a frozen wasteland. Um, and uh, so I... <laughs> Uh they say that huh? the people who grew up in Winnipeg have you know they build strong character so um i i have a lot of that although i i wouldn't say it's all from growing up in Winnipeg but <laughs> um but anyway my my uh family most of my family actually still lives there and um uh but i, I left about 40 years ago so I'm 61 years old, I'm married, I live with uh, my husband Joe and our dog Molly, and uh, we've been married since 2005, and Joe was actually my high school sweetheart, so um, we got together after 30 years, and um, we rekindled our romance, and we were both in recovery, so we could be together, we, we've been uh, married for 15 years now, so it's pretty amazing. So I'm a member of a 12-step program, and um, I've also been involved with She Recovers since 2012. So uh, I got involved. My very first meeting I went to a 12-step meeting was 1994. So you know, this is—it's been a long time coming. This uh, this recovery process, and um, I'm uh, also a, um, a practicing lawyer. Um, I have been since I was called to the bar in 2005. So for 15 years. And um, I'm also uh, a director on the board of the Lawyer's Assistance Program of B.C., um, I was involved with the Lawyer's Assistance Program uh, since I was in law school in 2002, and they've helped me trem- tremendously over the years. I also attend um, Recovery Dharma weekly meetings for a couple of years now. Um, we, we started it, it, it up in person. We've been recently doing it on Zoom, but uh, Recovery Dharma is, is a Buddhist perspective of uh, recovery and uh, meditation, which um, I, I really enjoy. So, You know, I'm involved in a lot of different things and I'm very open about recovery. Yes, I I am a member of a 12-step group, but, you know, I also um, practice and explore uh, other types of recovery and, you know, I'm curious and interested about, you know, any types of recovery and recovery is a big part of my life. Basically, I'm recovering primarily from alcohol and drugs, but uh, I am also recovering from trauma and shame. Um, as well as uh, codependency and overworking. Anxiety, depression, uh, unhealthy boundaries, and uh, this uh, overworking. I started my own practice, well, for about 20 years. (laughs) I've been working really, really hard and uh, I've always been ambitious. Well, at least when I after I got clean, I, I became very ambitious, and I had a lot of energy, and and I had a lot of work to do rebuilding my life. So, you know, that's great, that's healthy. But I, I think at some point I may have crossed the line into overworking. I I, I don't know when that happened, but you know, it, it did happen, and so you know, I'm I'm aware of that now, and I, I'm working on that as well. So, um, yeah, endless uh, recovery. Um, process for me in a nutshell though i would say i'm on recovering from addiction trauma and shame these are you know the core issues that you know i've had to deal with and and things that i had to deal with before i even understood that it was an issue i am going to put a bit of a trigger warning in here i, I am going to be talking about um domestic violence um physical and sexual assault um and you know other things that that may be disturbing to people so um uh I'm, Trying not to talk about it in too much detail, but it it is a part of my story, and and I feel I need to share about that as well. So uh, I'll just start right from the beginning. Um, uh, I was born in 1958, and I had a traumatic birth. My mom was very small; she was she was only 20, and she was quite small, and I was a small baby. And yet, it was a difficult delivery, and so they used forceps. Basically, what happened is I was injured from the forceps, and I was I guess I was completely purple uh, from the trauma of the forceps delivery. And I have to qualify that my my parents were very young when I was born. I was the first child of of four children. So, you know, they they really didn't know what they were doing. And as we all know, there's no guidebooks to being a parent. My dad, basically, uh, when he saw me and I was purple, he called me the purple people eater. And that was a popular song back then. And and it just became this uh, funny story that was told regularly about me all my life. As a joke, people would laugh and all of that, and it, you know, I knew there was something wrong. I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I'm I'm a sensitive person, and throughout my life, I m- learned that I was sensitive, and and you know, this this was probably the first time that I, I felt that sensitivity. I, I just knew that something was not right about it, and but I didn't understand the feelings I was having, and you know, it would come to feel like humiliation, and then shame. So, you know, this whole thing, this vulnerability, and then, you know, the way that it was treated, It, you know, at a very early age, you know, I, I do believe it was the beginning of an attachment injury with my parents. You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking and, and, you know, I realized that, you know, these things work together. Like I said, my parents were young, my dad was 19, my mom was 20. They were still partying when I was born. I heard a story, I guess when I was about one year old, um, my parents, We're having a party and I was there, you know, all cutely dressed up in my little dress and uh, my parents' friends gave me sips of alcohol. And basically, I got tipsy at a party and I was falling down and people thought that was cute. I'm, I'm laughing, but, you know, I can tell you that was my first taste of alcohol. At one years old, so you know already, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not only am I around alcohol; it was it was always around me. But you know, I tasted it and I felt the effects of it at you know very young age. So my dad is a was a police officer. Actually, he was a jail guard um, at the uh, local jail, and then he became a CP police officer. So he was always in uniform, and you know he carried a gun. He had handcuffs. He had a you know one of those bopper things, <laughs> baton, I guess. I really looked up to my dad and my first three years, three and a half years when there were no other children there, but I do remember it being happy. I guess, you know, when my sister was born, all that changed because, you know, I was, I was no longer the apple of my dad's eye. I was no longer the the only child. You know, my dad used to take me places and him and I would go together. And it just seemed like we had this special relationship that, you know, and I I know it's really common in families but, you know, for me, how it felt was, you know, I was just cast aside. Like I, I was no longer special. I, you know, now there's a new person. And, and you know, the dynamics in the family changed. that's how they remained. Uh, it, it never went back to what it was. My grandfather was blind. He was actually injured in a mining accident when he was 30 years old. And and so I grew up around my grandparents and my dad and my mom. And there really wasn't any other family because my mom had left her family behind. So, you know, my grandparents became a big part of my life and my childhood. And, you know, I just remember my grandmother was a very loving person and she uh, spoiled me. She protected me. She made me feel loved and special. And uh, my grandfather, uh, even though he was blind, he was very loving towards me. He was like, would gently touch my face to to try to feel what I looked like. And, you know, he told me that my face felt very pretty. And, you know, these these things just stayed with me. I I really felt loved by them. Also, um, you know, my mom was trying to control me and and my dad, you know, with corporal punishment was that is how my parents managed us children and, and because I was the first one I got it I got it pretty hard but when I was younger um, when my parents and grandparents were all living in the same house I guess I used to run to my grandma and, and say you know mommy's trying to hurt me and I'm sure that made my mom very frustrated but I mean she was my protector it was important to me to 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 have that a person that uh, loved me unconditionally back then because I I honestly did not feel that much in my family and, this corporal punishment, which was also very common back then in the 60s. I mean, parents were just, you know, not just spanking their kids with the hand, but I mean, using belts, rods. I mean, it was it was it was pretty bad back then. And, um, you know, had many spankings like with a leather belt. And I do remember one time when I was 10 years old, I wet the bed and uh, I was spanked and punished for it. And somehow it seems like that was the beginning of this cycle of being like bad, um, although I don't know if wetting the bed is bad, but, you know, bad and then getting punished. And, you know, my father punished me regularly um, with the strap. My mom didn't protect me. She um, basically enabled uh, it to continue. And, you know, he was more the the disciplinarian and, uh, you know, but she was emotionally distant. I don't think I was really acting out then. I was just kind of being myself, but you know, for some reason, I think they felt like they needed to control me. You know, I realized my mom was not my ally, and you know, my dad was just all about controlling me. And, and honestly, <laughs> I'm not a person who can be controlled. You know, I, even back then as a child, I was not going to be controlled. So you can see the, the conflict that arises from that situation. What is sort of ironic is, you know, I, I was basically a good girl, like, I, I was a brownie and I was a girl guide. I was a patrol at school. I took music lessons. Um, I played the accordion, and I was really good at it. I performed on stage. I uh, they asked me to uh, teach at the school. I loved music. I was I was really good at it. I really enjoyed it. I, I got good grades at school. I was on the honor roll in grade seven. Um, you know, I was kind of a nerd actually. <laughs> when I remember in grade eight, I, I wrote an um, essay, not a paper, an essay on euthanasia. Um, at 14 years old, I was, you know, tackling this uh, serious issue, which is, you know, kind of odd, I think. And, um, you know, I, I was, but I was curious about things like that. And, you know, I already have like a, a mind for serious social issues, you know, even when I was 14. I, I was living in an environment where, you know, it wasn't really encouraged, you know, but I, I was different. And, you know, as I got older, I became more outspoken. I, you know, I had... A logical mind. Uh, I did good in school, and, and I started to speak out to my parents. And in my family, it was like children should be seen and not heard. And you know, they they felt that they needed to control me. Ten years old, I, I started smoking. Age twelve, um, I started drinking. That was my my first drunk. Um, and I I got very drunk uh, when I was thirteen. I was it was the first time I was sexually assaulted. I was in the honor class, but we were segregated by our marks okay so back then so you know all the A students were in one class then the B students the C students and then the D students so of course the people I wanted to hang out with were not in my class but in the D class because it seemed just very cool and exciting and I just I just wanted to be with them, and I I started becoming interested in boys, and what happened is I was in a park, and and basically, I was uh, surrounded, and then I was held down, and I was groped in front of a group of boys, and, you know, of course, it was pretty funny to them, and and it was terrifying. It was very scary. Uh, Of course, I didn't tell anyone. second time, uh, I was was 14, and my best friend was... uh, I wanted to be her. Like, I didn't want to be me. I wanted to be her. And, and she was very popular with the boys. And her brother, he asked me to go steady. And I said no. He ended up trapping me in a room, sexually assaulting me. Now, you know, these things happen fairly close together. But, you know, I didn't tell anyone. Like, this is the thing. It's, you know, these, these things that happened to me, I never told one person. I just kept it inside. And somehow, you know, I developed what I didn't understand was feelings of shame about myself and about what happened. But, you know, definitely, you know, need to keep these feelings down. You know, when I was about 13, um, I was kind of chunky. Like I started putting on weight and, and, you know, my parents were telling me that, you know, I needed to lose weight and, you know, there was this constant name calling, um, you know, making fun of my weight, making fun of me and my weight. And then when I would get upset at that, then they would tell me that I'm too sensitive. I developed this sense of shame about myself, like I, this sort of self-loathing about myself and, and my body. This is when this started to develop, like around that that age. I did have successes. I Like I said, I was doing well in school. I was excelling. Um, and I was basically a good girl, but I didn't receive much praise. Uh, in, in fact, it was mostly just criticism. It was hard, right? It's like I, I just that feeling again that, you know, no matter what I do, I'm not good enough. And, and you know, that was just burnt into my psyche. And around age 15, I moved to another school. I started seeing this guy. One day, we didn't have school. It was boy that I was sort of seeing in school. And he just came over to my house and he left his shoes at the door and he just came right down to my bedroom. And basically he was trying to had sex with me and, I, and I, I didn't really know what was going on like it all happened very quickly like I didn't know he was coming over and going to do that anyway while this was happening I guess my mom uh, she didn't have work that day and she she came home and she saw his shoes in the landing and she came straight downstairs and basically she accused me of setting it all up for him to come over when she was at work. And, and when I tried to tell her what actually was happening, she she didn't believe me. And, you know, basically called me a whore and a slut and, and all of that. And that was just not the case. I was 15 or 16 and, and no boy had, except for the ones who had done so without my consent. I, you know, I, I was not sexually uh, promiscuous or, or even active at all. So, you know, to have that happen, it was just it was just such a, a misunderstanding of me and who I was and, you know, there I am trying to tell the truth and you know, not being believed. And, you know, that would prove to be a pattern for me over, you know, over and over of, you know, trying to tell the truth and not being believed. So at age sixteen I, I met my who's my now husband Joe. Yeah, and we had a four year relationship and it was pretty rocky. Um, you know, I was already drinking alcohol regularly and so was he. So uh, we would break up and get back together over and over. Drinking was my hobby now. So you know, alcohol was a, had become a huge part of my life. Lots of alcohol, then drugs, more and more. So all my friends drank. My whole family drank. Everybody around me was drinking alcohol. This is the norm. You know what I mean? Like it's nothing unusual about about this. This is this is this is my reality. From about 16 to 20, my well, my father had an affair. My mom found out. Of course, she was devastated. They started going through a very rough period. Basically, uh, they both started drinking a lot. They weren't home a lot. It wasn't a good time uh, at our house. You know, there was four kids living in the house. I was the oldest. And you know, the house was a mess. There was no food. Uh, there was, They weren't home. Um, one day, my dad assaulted my mother. And I tried to, I got involved. I tried to pull him off of her. And he just threw me down. And he, he threw her into a bathtub and uh broke her finger and then he took her into a bedroom and uh, assaulted her. No one else in my family was really exposed to that, because I was the oldest and you know, I was involved and, and you know, it had this, such an impact on me. It was it was just horrible, honestly. My dad started seeing another woman, my mom moved out and my, my dad bought custody of us. My dad is drinking more than ever. He's definitely an alcoholic. Like he's he's putting alcohol in his coffee in the morning before he went to work. And, uh, you know, it was pissing me off. Like, you know, I I thought here you are, you, you know, you did all this work to get custody of us. And now you're not even taking care of us. You're, you're drinking in the morning. You're, you're never home. There's no food in the fridge. The place is a mess. So, you know, I took his alcohol one day and I poured it down the sink and he didn't like that. (laughs) That made him really mad. So, you know, but then of course the dysfunction continued and my sister and I were home and, we had a fight one day and, and he came home and he said, you know, what are you doing? And I told him to go F himself. He was very angry. He was very, I mean, I was 19. I mean, it's, this is not a spanking. Okay. So, you know, he assaulted me and um, it wasn't good. It really wasn't good. It was, it was devastating to me, actually. I, you know, I, I mean, I went from being the apple of my daddy's eye to, to this. That day I moved into the house. So, and my sister helped me move my TV out. And then I was gone and I never went back. So then I was like 20 years old. I had been working. I had been in a place. And, and I had run into a, a friend from junior high. And she was she was a wild one. She she had been living in L.A. She said, hey, do you want to come to L.A.? And I said, sure. So anyway, I ended up quitting my job. And we drove down to L.A. from Winnipeg. And my goal was to party. That's what we did. And it was pretty crazy. And I can tell you, I was I was a wild party girl down there. Um, And it was 1979. So, you know, the 70s, the end of the 70s was uh, pretty decadent. And I I was doing a lot of drugs. Well, of course, drinking a lot. I was doing a a lot of cocaine, which, you know, I had found um, because I actually was not a very good drinker. I, I, you know, I really was not able to drink that much. You know, like I would get drunk easily and pass out. And, you know, that didn't really work for me because I wanted to keep on going. So, you know, when I found cocaine, it was just like, oh, this is a match made in heaven. There were also other drugs down there, quaaludes and things like that. So, you know, I was using just everything and anything. And we met a guy who uh, went over to his house and I let him shoot me up with heroin. He shot us all up. We did not know this guy at all. And uh, basically, my friends got really stuck throwing up. But did I get sick? No, no, I had this this epiphany and uh, it was just the most amazing experience. It was like the answer. Um, and I was just like, wow, I mean, it left such an impression on me. It was so, so powerful like perfection, nirvana, whatever. And, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I did not do that again. I didn't get involved in, in heroin when I was down there, but, you know, just having that one experience. Not good. Not good for me. I was living an extremely reckless, high-risk life, high lifestyle in L.A. And, uh, of course, two more sexual assaults. One sexual assault with a weapon, and then another one where I was held hostage for three days in Las Vegas, and I escaped this um, motel room and I ran for my life and hitchhiked back to L.A. These situations, you know, just caused me to feel more shame. Uh, you know, more shame around it, sexual assault, you know, the the drugs and then you know, the shame that you know, it's like I now I'm carrying a bag of shame and I'm just throwing things in it and, you know, carrying it around like a sack, right? Anyway, it just turned into a disaster. I ended up getting robbed, like the the money that I did have left. Some guy conned me out of it. I bought a car and then I went to get the car and the car was gone and the guy was gone so and it was all my money and that's how I was going to get back to Canada so I actually had no money and I was down there with no money which, which wasn't good I, I I just got on a plane and I, I went back to Winnipeg but you know at this point it was like there was nothing in Winnipeg for me it was just I got there I just I, I didn't feel like I fit in there I didn't want to be there and I, I got on a plane and I just by myself I just got on a plane and I went to Calgary I worked for a while, and then I bought a car, and then I drove by myself over the Rocky Mountains. I'd never driven in the mountains before (laughs) to Vancouver. So um, then I was in Vancouver. So there was another sexual assault. I I met a guy. I went to his place. um, It was a a date rape drug, and um, I was unconscious. And while I was unconscious, I was raped, and, and I was also videotaped. Um, And I knew that because when I woke up, there was like big, bright uh, spotlight cameras there. You know, I really didn't know what happened because I was unconscious. But, you know, after putting two and two together, like, you know, I mean, (laughs) it's like, you know, another one for the bag of shame now. You know, and once again, I did not tell anybody about that. I just pushed it down. And, you know, now it's like I, you know, I needed my alcohol to just, you know, keep, keep these things down. You know, I pretended like these things never happened. I believed it was my fault, again, uh, the shame. So from about 20 to 23, I was drinking, using drugs, cocaine, chemicals. Uh, it was just a whirlwind of parties. I started to get bored with it, and I, I started to feel like, you know, I really want to change my life. Right? You know, this is, it honestly, was getting boring. And, uh, you know, I, I know that this was probably an opportunity for me to get help for my traumas, uh, for my addiction, but, you know, there was no one around. Nobody knew what I was doing. There were no role models. I don't think I really realized what a problem I had. And, you know, in my mind, I thought, I just have to change my life. You know, it's always the external, Um, you know, I, I'm a bad person, but if I can maybe, you know, do these things, I can, you know, make myself into a good person. Started to think that, you know, I'd like to have a higher education and I decided that I was going to go back to university and take psychology. So I went to the U of A in Edmonton and um, by myself, I I bought student loans and I would go to the bar and do my homework there. And, you know... (laughs) After like a cup of beer, I really wasn't interested in my psychology text anymore. And I was really just looking for the party. So, you know, it's just like I heard somebody say, it's not just, it's not a light switch. You can't just switch it off. I mean, I, I, I've always, you know, had these expectations of myself that, you know, I'm I'm just going to change now and I'm just going to turn that switch off. But it it's not like that. It's never been like that. And, you know, I, back then I thought I could just do that. You know, I was trying to, to make changes, but of course I was still drinking. Um, I met my or my husband to be. He's a different kind of a guy, but you know he wasn't really he wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict. So I thought, hey, he's a healthy guy, and he was kind of interesting. He was a poet. We started dating, and um, you know he started making fun of me being in school. Like you know he sort of mocked me. I mean, he wasn't supportive. Let's put it that way. He just he just thought you know getting a higher education was a waste of time. I ended up dropping out of university before I finished the year. He was an he was an artist. He was a writer. He was, you know, kind of a progressive thinker and a poet, and he, he had a lot of interesting ideas and sort of new age back then. I was interested in this new age stuff. And anyway, I got really, really involved with him. And I I mean, I think I fell in love with him. I mean, he's very charming. And, um, but he turned out to be, you know, well, he was a narcissist, and he was abusive. You know, he wasn't a good husband or father material. We had two children together, and you know, as a, as an artist, he, he couldn't hold down the job. He didn't work. And so we had a lot of financial instability, a lot of fighting, serious financial instability. And, you know, I had two little babies and, you know, it really wasn't good to end up having to go back to work. You know, i worked in the restaurant industry quite a bit, like over the years. And, you know, I've, I've done everything. I've been, you know, a server, a bartender, you know, fine dining, a pub, I mean, all of it. And so I went back to work in the restaurant industry. And as most people know, it's not the healthiest environment, you know, like a lot of drinking going on there. Because we were having so many problems at home, I started drinking again. And then I met some people who owned the restaurant and they were they were coke users. Now, I had not touched drugs for, I don't know, about seven years. And then I met these people. And uh, the next thing you know, I had like a a full relapse on cocaine. I, I ended up going to someone's house. And I had a, a relapse. I, I didn't come home till about six in the morning, and you know I wasn't doing anything but, except of course, using cocaine. And uh, when I got home, of course, my husband thought that I was having an affair, which I wasn't. He got very angry at me, and he assaulted me. I just told him if he ever did that to me again that I was going to leave. I mean, he was a verbally abusive person, anyways. So like it, it, it wasn't the healthiest relationship, unfortunately. So a few months later, I, I actually had called the crisis line. At this point, this is one of the first times I ever reached out for help, and I, you know, I explained what had happened, and you know, I, you know, I just talked to a counselor, and they said if he did it once. There's a good chance that he's going to do it again, and I was like, well, no, he promised me he would never do it again, and but you know, I had that information, even just with a little bit of information, and so you know, a few months later, and, you know, we, we just went to um, a work party, a uh, Christmas party where I worked. He'd had too much to drink, and I'd been drinking. Anyway, we got home, and we got into a big fight, and um, he he accused me of, you know, having some fling with some co-workers, and so then he assaulted me, and he threatened to kill me, and you know, ripped the phone out of the wall. I left. I, I made a plan. I, I phoned the crisis worker again, and And I I made a plan, Um, I phoned the shelter, and uh, when he was having a nap, I took the children and I went to live in the shelter for 30 days. You know, I got a bit of counseling there, and then uh, when I came home and I, you know, I told him, I said, you know, you you have to get some counseling. You have to get some counseling, not me. Um, And, of course, he refused, and um, that was the end of my marriage. That was probably another opportunity where I could have gotten some help, I think it was so many emotions going on and, and, you know, I, I just had these new people in my life. And of course this, this other guy, he moved into to my life and, you know, I found out that he was a drug dealer. He was actually the drug dealer for the, the restaurant where I worked and he, he dealt in cocaine. I, I ended up, being in a relationship with him for about four years, and he, he was a drug dealer. And uh, what I didn't know is he was also a heroin user, and he also dealt in heroin. So I didn't know that when I first met him. I'd never really been involved in that, and this is this is, this was the beginning of um, my addiction. And this time it was a real addiction. Like I became addicted to heroin and cocaine, and, and my addiction spiraled out of control for basically four years. Three and a half years, I guess. So from the time I was 33 to 36 and a half, my drug use just got worse and worse. I lost everything. I I, I lost myself. I had quite a low bottom. Um, in the end, I was using intravenously. Um, both cocaine and heroin. And I mean, as you can imagine, um, like with a drug dealing boyfriend and and he controlled me with drugs, you know, he would give it to me, but then he would not give it to me. And, you know, and, and I mean, that's how he controlled, like, I would get angry and then he would, you know, give me drugs and, and then I'd be calm again. I mean, it was really, it was pathetic. It was a lot of destruction, self-destruction. And, you know, I think the worst thing of all is, you know, I have my children with me and they were neglected and they, they were harmed by my addiction. And it it was horrible. All I can say is, you know, it caused me to feel so much guilt and shame. You know, on top of all the other shame I have in 1994, my family actually had heard that I wasn't doing well and they staged a family intervention and I hadn't seen them for seven years. And, um, you know, I mean, my addiction was bad. I was on methadone. I was using the needle exchange. Basically my sister knocked at my door one day and I'm like, who is it? And she said, you know, your sister. And I'm like, well, can you come back in 10 minutes? And I'm like, Oh, my God, my place is an absolute disaster. I mean, like, you have no idea. So, like, I tried to clean it up, which is impossible. So, anyway, 10 minutes later, she came. I opened the door, and my whole family came bounding in. You know, my mom, my dad, my neighbor, uh, I think my uncle, my sisters, uh, my dad and his girlfriend, um, you know. (laughs) and Honestly, it was the most humiliating experience of my entire life. Of course, they were shocked, because I was like, like about 110 pounds. And, you know, like I did not look good. Uh, It was not good. It was very overwhelming. Like they had written letters and, you know, I guess they had consulted with a counselor to do this intervention, but there was no counselor presence for this. So it wasn't a professional intervention. It was just kind of a, let's just wing it intervention. And I was overwhelmed and I was, I was extremely humiliated. Basically, I just locked myself in the bathroom for, and I wouldn't come out and I told them to leave I said you have to go I can't I'm not coming out eventually I came out and I guess they had called the police on my drug dealing boyfriend and they changed the locks on the door and they had made arrangements for me to go to treatment in Winnipeg and to go to detox so I was like oh really (laughs) nobody asked me so Anyway, I did go to detox because I was addicted to drugs. Um, you know, and I started to think, you know, I really don't like this. You know, this is not my idea. I'm, and I remember saying to myself, I'm 36 years old. You can't just walk into my life after seven years and tell me what to do. I will do what I want with my body. You know, I just had this attitude, this real chip on my shoulder. And, and basically, I, when I was in detox and I, I started to feel sick, because I needed my drugs, I, I just knew I, I couldn't, I just couldn't go through with it. And I knew I wasn't going to treatment. And basically, I told them, and they were very disappointed, of course, because, you know, they would put a lot of energy into coming out to help me. And I just told them to go home. I said, I'm not going to treatment, just go. I, now, at this point, my children were not living with me anymore. The ministry had come to my door and told me that if I didn't give my children to their father, that they were going to apprehend. And uh, of course, when everybody left, you know, then it was just full on, just full on uh, drug use. Yeah. It was, it was just a disaster. My boyfriend had left town. I was living in his apartment by myself and I just, I tried to make it on my own there, but I I just, you know, I was just so caught up in uh, this guy. And basically I, left my apartment in victoria i actually got on a bus on christmas eve 1994 and i left my apartment so all my unpaid bills all my stuff everything photos everything i just left it behind got on a bus and left and, and oh, if you know me that is not something i would ever do and my kids were heartbroken and you know i just i i said i'm gonna go And I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to get a job and get my life together. So, of course, that didn't happen because, you know, wherever you go, there you are. So, you know, when I got to the new place, to the new boyfriend, I mean, of course, we just started using trucks again. I mean, he was still dealing. I mean, nothing had changed. Um, I got a job uh, working in a restaurant. And, you know, I was drinking and using. I mean, it was just ridiculous. I could not hold down the job. And, you know, my addiction really had progressed to the point where I, I could not hold down a job at all I did start seeing a counselor in this town I was living in and it's the first time I ever really talked to a counselor and I you know I, I kind of told her what was going on so she asked me she said so when are you going to stop using and I said well I think I'll stop using after summer over." and she goes well you know you might not make it to the end of summer and I just looked at her like what <laughs> what are you talking about not make it Like, you know, I do you know what I've survived? Like, I'm a survivor. I said, I'm going to make it. I I always make it. And it was the first time somebody had held up a mirror to me and sort of contradicted what I I was saying. And she was awesome. I mean, she she was amazing. Then uh, my boyfriend and I, we ended up going to Calgary. And uh, of course, we got into a big fight there. He physically assaulted me. I didn't know it at the time, but I had two broken ribs. It was winter, still winter in Calgary, and um, basically, I was like, I'm out of here, and I just I grabbed my bag. I didn't have a car. I didn't have any money, and I was intoxicated, and I was walking in Calgary that night by myself. I don't know. It was like 10 that night or something. I ended up hitchhiking, and, and somebody gave me a ride, and the police picked me up, took me to the hospital, and... I was in the hospital in Calgary and, and I was being examined and the police officer phoned my boyfriend and, and they were, they were trying to get some information about me because I had told them what happened. And so they were trying to get the other side of the story. And yeah, they told the police that I had a history of violence and, and you know, the police believed them. They treated me extremely poorly, uh, the police after, after that. And I was so angry when they told me that that's what they said. So then they basically just brought me off downtown in front of the bus people, which was closed. It was, pretty awful I I ended up calling a friend who bought me a a bus ticket and I got on a bus but not for a few hours I had to wait around outside it's just honestly it's it's just a a total nightmare Um, eventually I I got to my grandma's in Cranbrook that's when I got back in touch with um, the counselor and uh, you know I told her what had happened and she helped me my grandma helped me I, I took a bus back to the town where I was living and the counselor had arranged for a police officer to attend and so that I could get my stuff, and um, <clears throat> I got out of there, and I just wanted to get the hell out of there, and the counselor had arranged for, for me to have a bus ticket, and she had bought me a one-way ticket to Vancouver to a treatment centre in Vancouver at the BC Women's uh, Hospital, and it was a, uh, called Aurora Centre. It was a six-week programme for women. So there I was in a treatment center and um you know I really didn't want to be there once again. You know, it was uh an amazing program. Uh no caffeine, no sugar. I'll just say that. I had a very disruptive personality. I I actually uh engaged in of course I didn't know that it was called this back then, civil disobedience. I uh rallied some of the women together and challenged an unfair policy in the treatment center. <laughs> Anyway, I got called into the office on Monday morning, and basically, I had to sign a contract. If I continued to disrupt the uh, treatment center, that I would have to leave. What happened in treatment is um, I had ideas that you know really were were not correct. Like for example, um, there was a counselor, my counselor that was assigned to me. She was an older lady, like in her 60s or something. And uh, yeah, I'm in my 60s now. I don't really think of myself as an older lady, but she just looked like an old lady to me, and I thought. How can you possibly help me i mean you're you're in your sixties you're an old lady, you're not mad at, i mean you're not going to you can't help me I mean you know, look, like I already had these preconceived notions that you know she wasn't going to be able to help me and and anyway, we were supposed to journal it's like so there were questions we were answer ask, asked and answer you know writing our answers in a journal, and then we would give the, the daily journal journal to the counselor who would then give us feedback on what we had written and this counselor she was so. Compassionate, like you know, because of course I wrote some things in there, and I, I wasn't in the habit of really telling people about you know the things I'd experienced or the way I felt. And granted, I wasn't telling anybody, but you know, the first time that I did uh, disclose this information to a counselor, I mean, she just the most compassionate note in response to the things that I had written, and you know, it just really touched my heart in a way that I I wasn't expecting. And I uh, know I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Um, yeah. So just that compassion that I had never felt for so many years. And that wall, you know, that hard, hard wall that I had built up and, you know, she, you know, she touched me through that. And, um, then, uh, the other thing that happened is I did yoga for the first time in my life in the treatment center and I wasn't able to do the yoga because I, I, I still had the cracked ribs. I knew by this time I had cracked ribs because I, I, they had done an x-ray and, and cause I, I really wasn't sure. I just knew that I had a pain. I wasn't able to do the yoga. At, in the yoga class, we were doing like a chakra thing. And, uh, you know, we, we, we had to put our hands to our heart and, um, you know, it's just all the emotions just came flowing out of me. Like I just, I just started to cry, like for the first time in, like I don't know, eight years. Like I, I cried and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and so you know, it was like a, a, a crack in the in the shell. And like I said, it you know there was other really amazing things. I learned a lot of things about addiction. I really thought I had it all under control, and I went back to Victoria and I, I lived in a um, a recovery house for three months. It it was good, but it you know it wasn't perfect. This began my uh, five years of A&D counselling. And uh, I went to an alcohol and drug counsellor. And so then I lived there for another few months. And then uh, I finally uh, got a place and, and I got my own place. This is 1995. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in recovery. I'm, I'm going to meetings. And for me, once again, it's about going back to school. I, I've got to go to school. i I've got to get a degree. I've got to get a degree, get a job, get a place, get my children back. I mean, I'm rebuilding my life. And and there's a lot of a big mess to clean up. I was uh, extremely uh, ambitious about that. And and in school, it was a program called EOW, which is Employment Opportunities for Women. It's like a pre-college course just to uh, to get people reacquainted with uh, being back in the school system. And I met a girl in there. She was also in recovery. And I'm telling you, like her and I together were just trouble with a capital T. And we were craving disruption in the class. So anyway, I got kicked out of that program. She got let back in and I didn't. And I didn't think that was fair. So then I had to advocate for myself. And, uh, you know, I wrote a letter and I made an appeal. I Uh, So anyway, I advocated for myself and I got let back into the program and I completed it, which was amazing because, um, we did these assessments in EOW, which, uh, I then became a stepping stone for me to uh, go into college as a result of getting, you know, advocating for myself and getting back in. I was trying to get a a place for myself and I had been in, lived in subsidized housing before. And unfortunately I had a, a history because, you know, of my addiction and, uh, when I left my, my place, I, I had created a lot of damage. And so I, I had this black mark on my history with the subsidized housing program. And, and um, I basically just convinced them to give me a chance. You know, I said, I'll do anything. Like, I'll get insurance. You can do quarterly inspections. Like, I, I must have this place because I really needed to get a place to get my children back. And that was the plan my husband was going to give my children back to me when I got a place. And I ended up staying with them in that subsidized housing for 10 years. My children didn't come back easily because when, when I got the place and I, I said, okay, I have a place now. I've got a bedroom and I've got the furniture. Okay, bring, give me my children back. And he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't give them back to me. Um, I had to get a lawyer. What I didn't realize is I actually had an order for sole custody, but I didn't understand that, what that meant. The first lawyer I went to told me he he said, "Oh, you'll never get your children back. Uh, you, you know, you'll have to like stay clean for a year." He didn't ask me if I had any orders or you know he just assumed that I was just you know starting from scratch. So anyway, I said, "Okay, fine." And I'm, I I decided I'm finding another lawyer. She's going to be a woman and she's going to be a feminist. <laughs> so I found a lawyer and I I phoned up the reception. I said is she a feminist? And the receptionist is like, um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so anyway, it's really important to me, right? To someone who's going to listen to me. So I, I went in there and it turns out, you know, there's so much magic in my recovery. I mean, I'm I'm glad we're talking about my recovery now because, you know, after all of that darkness, you know, there was a lot of magic in my recovery and I, I I'm, you know, just the people that I met and the people that came into my path, it, it, it's just amazing. And, So it turns out that her daughter was actually a heroin addict and lived in Australia and was struggling with addiction. So, you know, of course, when I told her my story, it's like, you know, there was some context there and she actually had some compassion for me. And she she ended up I mean, of course, what I thought she did was magic. Like I had my kids back within two weeks after hiring that lawyer. Well, she found out that I had court orders <laughs> and we uh, enforced them. So uh, within two weeks, the sheriff brought the children back to me and it was just like, boom. And you know what? Alex? I just thought this woman, she is a mayor worker and she inspired me so much. That's what inspired me to become a lawyer. And, you know, I just thought, you know, she helped me so much. I want to help other women like that. I, I want to be in a position where, where, you know, I can have compassion. I can have empathy. I can help other women who are going through what I've gone through. I had no family support. Uh, basically, the father did not pay child support for 14 years. So I had no, no child support, no, no financial support except for social assistance. I had no family support because no, none of my family lived in town. I was in Victoria in about 1997 I and this is another sort of magical thing that happened is that uh, I had going been going to 12-step meetings and, and I decided I was going to choose this woman to be my sponsor and, and so we decided to go for coffee and so we, we went for coffee in Victoria and, and we were talking having like a little interview and she said so and I've been going to A and B counseling and trying to figure out what am I going to do what am I going to do after asking you know after I go to college? I'm going to go to college and and then what am I going to do like we were trying to make a plan and so I had decided already that I was going to law school. and So anyway, I sat down with this, my sponsor-to-be, and, and, and we were just having a conversation. She says, so, so what are your plans for the future? And I said, well, I've decided that I'm going to law school. She looked at me, and she goes, me too. Anyway, we ended up studying for the LSAT together, which is a test you have to take to, to even be uh, admitted. And then we wrote the LSAT together, and then we both applied to UVic to get into UVic Law School. She got in, and I didn't. kind of this mixed emotion. Right. I mean, I was happy for her and devastated for myself. So, you know, then I started feeling like, who do you think you are? You know, you can't do this. You're not smart enough. You're never going to get in. Like, who do you think you are? And then in 1997, one of my girlfriends from my group of friends, when I was in high school, my drinking friends, she actually died from cirrhosis and she was 39. And uh, she had a six-year-old son. It was very upsetting. And, um, I didn't want to relapse because I just, I knew that I, I was vulnerable for a relapse. I honestly, I was struggling. I was struggling financially. Around April 1998, I, I just decided that I was going to get high. I, I was in, came into recovery in 95, and then I continued to relapse for three years. So I would get 30 days. I would get 60 days, 90 days, six months, even after a year, I relapsed. And uh, so I had been through all these relapses, and then this was, you know, this last relapse I had nine months, and I just decided that I decided I wanted to get high. I, I actually wanted to use cocaine, but I, I couldn't find it, so we, we were, I used uh, heroin, and I overdosed. I actually overdosed and died, and then the ambulance was called. I was rushed to the hospital, and I was revived with what's now called naloxone. We called it Narcan back then. So... That was in 1998, and you know, I I didn't skip a beat because you know when you're unconscious, you don't remember what happened. I mean, it was like nothing happened. I just woke up in the hospital, and I I got up and left. And anyway, my my doctor called me a week later, and uh, he I guess he'd gotten the results from the hospital, and and I I continued to use. And because uh, you know, once you open that door, <laughs> it's, you know, it's very hard to close it again. I started to give up on myself really. I, I just started to think, you know, I can't after all these years of trying and recovery, like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make it. I, I can't do it. Um, you know, I'm different. You know, you people, this recovery thing works for you, but it doesn't work for me because you know, I'm just, I'm just, I can't live without a substance. You know, I, I just, I can't do it. And I, I really started to believe that. And I started to resign myself to a life being an addict. I have to say that, you know, all this time, I, I was also still working on my recovery. Like, I had many support. There wasn't a lot of alternatives back then, okay? I mean, 12-step meeting was kind of it. Um, but I also went to A&D counseling. I went to a psychologist for one year. I uh, went to the Victoria Sexual Assault Center for, with a counselor for one year. So I did have some work on the trauma. Uh, I was a member of an assault group of women. You know, I real, That's when I realized the extent of my trauma, right, like pen assault. 10 assaults and attempted assaults. And some of the women in these groups, it, it was just one. One or 10. I mean, it's still really horrible. But, you know, it's like that's when I understood the gravity. I started to understand the gravity of what i had been through. I had a sponsor who, you know, loved me unconditionally. You know, one of the things that, that, uh, that I realized that I had was that, you know, I had a dysfunctional relationship with men. And, you know, it was just an unhealthy pattern. And, I, you know, but I became aware of that. Um, I also did a lot of journaling. I, I did step work. So I was doing all of these things. And yet, you know, I, I still had that relapse. And, you know, while I was trying to rebuild my life, I like when I, after I got rejected the first time from law school, I decided to reapply. Like the whole idea was I'm not going to give up. And so I did reapply for the next year, um, but I hadn't heard back. And honestly, I... I think that I was just trying to soften the blow of the rejection because I knew the rejection was coming but because, yes, I'd been rejected once. And it's just a matter of time before I get rejected again. I mean, that's what I believe. I wasn't using every day, but I, I, I couldn't stop. And anyway, on June 7th, 1998, I got a letter in the mail and I opened the letter and it was it was an acceptance letter to UVic Law School. And I have to tell you that my jaw hit the floor. Okay. Because I, I, as I was opening it up, I was ready. I was high actually. And I was ready for it to be the rejection letter. I was ready for the rejection, like bring it on. And I was not expecting that. And it, honestly, it really threw a monkey wrench into my self-pity uh, destructive plan. I mean, you know, my resignation. Once that happened, it was like, Oh my God. Like, I know that I, there's no way I'm going to make it in law school if I'm using. I mean, I I knew that. I, like, I've been doing all this work on myself, and just because, and this is my my big message is just because you've had a relapse doesn't mean that you lose all of the information. And you know, now that I felt like I had something to live for, and you know, I have to say that you know I did want to stay clean for my children, but because of the guilt and shame, like I just could not. Like, I know that for a lot of women, you know, their children really helped anchor them in recovery. That was just not my experience. What I thought is that I, they would be better off if I was not here. That's basically where I was with that. So, you know, you can imagine how, how dark that was. So, you know, when I got this acceptance letter, I, it was like this bright light and um, it was hope. It was like, wow, I have a second chance. Like, I really have a second chance. And anyway, within two weeks, I had just decided and I started to apply all of those skills and, you know, I became willing basically to do all the things maybe that I wasn't doing. I made a decision that I was going to, stubbornly, I'm going to stay clean and no matter what. So uh two months later, I was in law school. I Started law school, and you know, again, it's like woohoo! I'm in law school. It's like, oh my god, what have I done? Because you know, this is uh, law school is not easy. Like, it's it's not like college, and it's not it's um, it's extremely intimidating. Let me tell you, I didn't feel like I fit in there. In fact, I thought they were going to tell me that I had to leave because you know, I, I just felt so out of place. You know, I was older, I was in recovery, I was a mother, I, you know, I I, I didn't know what I was doing. Facebook. took me about five years. And um, so that's when I started going to the women's meeting is um, uh, basically I, I realized, you know, that I look back at my relapses and, you know, a lot of my relapses had to do with meeting guys, you know, in meetings and then getting high. Um, I started going to the women's meeting. And that was one of the things that helped me to, you know, not be distracted by men and, and not, you know, get involved in, you know, these hookups. And I got very involved in the women's meeting in Victoria. And that's basically um one of the strengths in my recovery. We say in the program, you know, no relationships for a year. So, you know, probably one year to the day I met a guy in a meeting and just decided that yeah you're the one and I got involved in this relationship with a guy who was actually not clean and he wasn't staying clean and I was involved in this relationship for four years and you know it's just an example of again you know you can't just turn off the light light switch. you know this is a process and you know I made an, another unhealthy choice and I continued to stay in the relationship for, for four years while he relapsed on my drug of choice And I did not use. And I came very close to using. It was a dangerous situation to be in. It was extremely unhealthy. And, you know, eventually I just realized, you know, after four years that, you know, I deserve to be with somebody who is also working on the recovery as hard as I am. Like, why can't I be with someone who's also, you know, staying clean? It's a self-esteem thing. He wasn't a bad person, but he had an addiction. And it was chaos and insanity in my life, even though I wasn't using. So finally, I... uh, uh, my uh, high school sweetheart, Joe, called me out of the blue and uh, we ended up meeting and um, started dating long distance. And I moved to Vancouver and uh, that's where I was called to the bar. We ended up getting married in August 2005 and then we moved to Kelowna. But I was not open about my recovery in the beginning. I, I was really afraid that people were going to find out about my past. It, it is extreme. And, you know, I thought that it would hurt my chances in being a lawyer. And yet at the same time, becoming a lawyer... I thought, well, that's going to catapult me far away from this life that I was living. I'm going to be so far away from the lifestyle that, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm never going to use again. That was part of my, you know, MO, but it, you know, it was an easier said than done. Like I had my life compartmentalized, you know, I, I was not open about my recovery and I was so afraid that people were going to find out about it, about my past. But of course my past kept, crashing down into my life, you, you can't control that. I mean, it, it, I ran into people. Uh, I saw people in the courthouse when I was articling, uh, people I used to use with. I mean, I, I would find out what happened to people that I used to know and, and um, you know, a drug dealer being shot. And, you know, it, it was hard to believe that I, I, I was involved in, in that lifestyle with those people. Uh, we moved to Kelowna where his parents lived. Uh, we bought a house. Um, and then I I worked as a lawyer for a year and a half and then um, uh, basically that business went under and I started my own practice. You know, they don't really teach you in law school how to run a business or, you know, run a a practice. I took a lot of legal aid clients. A lot of my clients had been through, you know, what I went through, you know, just with the domestic violence and, you know, protection orders and addiction and the ministry and just, you know, honestly, like it became quite triggering for me, you know, because there was a lot of unresolved trauma. Even even now, like I, I don't think I've healed all, all of my trauma because it's, it's a lot. And so, you know, with my job, like, unfortunately, as much as I wanted to help people, providing information, empowering people to stand up for themselves and, you know, not give up, like, I, I love that. Um, but at the same time, like, these facts are, you know, triggering for me. And, you know, I, I was just starting to experience some vicarious drama uh, just through the facts of my cases. And um, it's, been, it's been tough, like, you know, and I've been basically working my butt off for 20 years. I, I did build a practice. I, I have a successful family practice now, but I've come to realize that, you know, I've been working too much, you know, like I sacrificed a lot again, so being super busy, it's like I'm still unavailable for people, unavailable for my children because I'm, now I'm so busy. And yes, I have a good excuse, but at the same time, it's like, what kind of life do I want to live? because I was so busy working and, you know, I do have a lot of time that I kind of drifted away from my recovery uh, a bit. You know, I I wasn't going to meetings as much. And, you know, there were some conflicts because I live in a small town and, you know, sometimes my clients would be at the meetings and sometimes the other party would be at the meeting because when you do family law, it's not just one person. And, you know, became uncomfortable a few times. just got to a, a place where, you know, I you know, I had a lot of files. I I wasn't feeling comfortable going to the meetings. And and yes, uh, you know, in 2012, I got involved in She Recovers, and I went to a recovery day event in Vancouver. It was like a thousand people there. It was just so inspiring. And also that year, I had been looking online, and I found She Recovers, and I found that they were having their first ever uh, event in Tulum. And so. I signed up. <laughs> it was just fantastic. I mean, it was just magical. Just it was the beginning of a whole new piece of my recovery, and uh, I got quite involved with she recovers. I, I went to New York. I went to Bali. I went to Salt Island. I went to California. It was it was fantastic, and I was you know getting more and more involved. And she recovered a couple of years, and I had kind of a, a meltdown in 2019, and you know that's when I realized I had to restart my recovery. I, I had to, like, I, I just knew that if I didn't, I, I was, you know, something bad was going to happen to me. So I joined a home group. I started going to meetings regularly. I started going to the recovery drama meetings. I got involved with She Recovers again. And uh, then COVID happened. I mean, I got busy, busier. And I, well, I was starting to get back to work. And then COVID happened. And basically, I didn't work for a month. And it was this... Break in my working life, I was actually finally able. To, some feelings started coming up, and I started realizing that I have these other issues. And I and then she recovers started uh, online with the Zoom meetings, and uh, basically I've gotten like totally reconnected with she recovers I'm back in the saddle, so to speak. You know, with my recovery, I'm just you know doing a lot better, and I, I I'm also. Uh, doing a the Whole Life Challenge. I've been doing that all year. So I've been doing some radical self-care around eating and exercising and going to the gym. And, you know, like I'm really just rebuilding at this time myself. So I'm I'm taking a, a coaching course. I was actually signed up for a course a couple of years ago, but I was too busy to follow through. And so I actually was signed up for a, co- a coach. I am a coach, actually. I took a coaching course earlier this year and I, I'm taking a recovery coaching course. And it got uh, canceled due to COVID. And finally, it's uh, going ahead in White Rock. I'm actually meeting tomorrow. And I'm basically hoping to transition uh, from being a lawyer to coaching. But, you know, I know it's it's going to take some time. But, you know, I have a plan. And I'm really excited. Honestly, I'm really excited about this new phase in my life. And I don't know. it just really gives me hope for, for the future. Just finally being able to turn my passion and embrace. You know, all that I've been through and my recovery, and share that with other women and empower and help other women. That's what I've always wanted to do. So that's uh, what's happening for that's me. That's amazing. Um,
1: so after all these <laughs> years of recovery, you aren't just staying sober and treading water. You went through some hard things and then used that as an opportunity to sort of bring yourself forward and add some new pieces into your recovery, which is so cool because I feel like a lot of us, especially when we're starting out, there's this tendency to think, it's just going to get easy. It'll just be my life after a while. Ho-hum, no big deal. But I mean, it can be that way, I'm sure for some people, but sometimes challenges are an opportunity. To do things differently Absolutely. and make it better, right? Don, you know what really strikes me as you told your story? And first of all, just my heart goes out to you for everything you suffered. And thank you for sharing so openly about that because I know that's not easy. But the only time you broke down as you told your story <laughs> was when mm-hmm. you talked about someone saying, I see you. Someone who really yeah. saw you. And yeah. even after decades, that is still a powerful yeah. memory. It speaks to how much you lost when you lost yourself to have someone yeah, see you and pull you back. Is that what brings up the emotion? Is that where that's coming from?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, as a child, I, I just felt invisible I wanted to be invisible so you know it was you know being seen uh, finally after all these years and heard it was just so huge and you know so many yeah. people have helped me so yeah. many like my sponsor my husband um, my women friends my my dogs. I mean you know just honestly the the people who have helped me and the counselors, um, the relationships that I, I've developed in recovery, it's like, if it wasn't for that, like, I, I just wouldn't have made it. And I'm just so grateful for, you know, everyone who helped me at whatever piece part they played. I mean, in, in my recovery story, I'm just so grateful.
1: Your story is amazing because law school is, isn't for the faint of heart. I'm hardworking and Pretty smart, I couldn't get into law school, <laughs> and if I did i wouldn't work hard enough to stay in law school like I mean this is no joke. you had so much ability and then so much pain, and your joy and your spirit just couldn't be contained, and you yeah. you channeled it, you know you channeled it, yeah into success. (laughs) And then Uh I wonder about the workaholism, if that Mm -hmm. is a little bit of an addiction transfer. Do you think that it's sort of a band-aid way to numb the pain in a more positive way? Absolutely.
2: Oh, totally. That's what I mean. It started off, you know, sort of benign, and you know it, it. It was you know ambition, and it was raw ambition, and and I was going to get it done. I mean, I'm very stubborn, but you know, I'm also tenacious, and I can persevere. Like I, I'm a lot stronger than than I thought I was. You know, I just turned that that stubbornness into you know I'm I'm going to make this happen. I didn't do it alone, that's for sure, and you know, none of us do you know, there, I I didn't do it it alone. And yeah, I just made a decision and and I was going to have it. And that was that. But again, without the support of people telling me, you know, do you think I can do this? And just that validation? Yes, I do. I think you can do that. Or remember my counselor, you know, when I said, do you think I could be a lawyer? And she said, yes, I do. She said, in fact, I think you could be a judge. And I just, I, I laughed so hard when she said that I was like, are you, it's like having (laughs) people like that in my life. That's yeah. amazing.
1: We are out of time. All right. <laughs> you were so generous. You, you just shared your story so beautifully. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jean. It's
2: been a pleasure. Thanks.
1: That's it for the Bubble Hour this week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember, if you would like to send feedback to our guests, just email thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will pass on your message. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care.
0: I own it, I did that Not proud, but that was me And when I face it Take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power of weakness head on Just lays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on. You can shine when you see the old I did that, not proud, that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be.